Okay, quite a story tonight, the story of Deborah, and it's my great joy to get to your, be your preacher tonight as well as your executive pastor and head of staff. However, I need to say that as we wander into this series about women in leadership and God's call, um, particularly Deborah is in leadership, how women have been chosen by God, as a woman standing before you, it feels a bit like saying, I hope you all agree. That, that women are chosen. And I know that there's some of you that maybe don't agree. And so maybe this sermon series feels a little uncomfortable to you. And you're wondering, you know, am I going to be persuaded? Maybe you've even stopped showing up. Maybe you're watching online and thinking, I don't know about this. So as we get started tonight, I would just like to say, I'm not here tonight to convince you of something. I'm here, my, my job is to open up these scriptures and to consider this story of Deborah that God has put into these scriptures and that it might cause us to think about our own story because that's the point, that God wants to meet us through his word and invite us forward. Please join me in prayer. Gracious God, would you um, speak through your word tonight? Would you take the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together and use them to your glory? Lord, if there's anything that's um, said that, that is untrue, it's, may it be like chaff and just drift away. And if there, Lord, if there is truth here and if there is a sense of call and purpose, um, not only to these words, but that your voice would speak, uh, we want to hear that voice and we want to say yes to that. So come, Lord Jesus, and use this time. Uh, speak your word to your people. Amen. Do you have some heroes? I had heroes as a kid. And I have to say, in the time when I was growing up, there weren't that many women that really caught my attention. My first hero was Abraham Lincoln. I don't know, I was in the first grade, maybe something like that, when we studied this 16th president. And it just seemed amazing to me that he was... Um, Growing up in a log cabin and studying by a little candlelight, he was like self-taught all the way through law school, and then he basically changed the world as president and led us to put an end uh, to slavery, and he just totally captured my attention. But then I was kind of looking for some girls or women, and the one that I found was an athlete. You may not remember her, but her name was Dorothy Hamill. She was an ice skater. She was a brunette and I was a brunette. So this like meant something to me. In fact, it meant so much to me that I had the Dorothy Hamill haircut for probably almost two decades of my life. A little wedge cut, it just worked for me. Uh, you could also tell I had admired Princess Leia at a time, you know, another hero. <laughs> Uh, Billie Jean King was another woman who caught my eye. She was a female tennis player who took on um, the battle of the sexes. She uh, took on a tennis match against a man. Now, admittedly, he was almost twice her age, but she beat him in three sets straight, and 90 million people watched it on TV. So I came from an era when women heroes were hard to find. Marie Curie was one who caught my attention because she was a physicist and a chemist. She won the Nobel uh, Prize twice, and she had a quote that touches me. Nothing in life is to be feared. It is only to be understood. Nothing is to be feared. Now, I was that kind of kid that wanted life to be a big adventure where, where there was nothing to fear. 
And it was only to be like understood. If we just break every problem down into steps, it becomes doable. And what I loved about Marie Curie is not only was she brilliant, but I found out that she won this Nobel Prize with her husband, which somehow spoke to me that you could be smart and be married and have a husband. It was exciting news. So for many of us, we sought out heroes. For others, perhaps they were heroes in our own family. Think about your own family. Were there some folks who caught your eye as living out something heroic? In my family, it was my grandma. Uh, she was, I think this is a picture that's going to come up there. She is the one standing in the back looking heavenward. Um, that's my Armenian grandmother, and in the early 1900s, she was born in Armenia. And at the time she was born, there was essentially a massacre as Turkey invaded Armenia. And my, my grandma was an infant who, the story goes, was sewn into the skirts of her mom's dress and smuggled onto the ship that brought them to Ellis Island as immigrants. We've gone back to those Ellis Island records, and indeed, there is a baby named Arshalus Bedrosian, which was my grandma's Armenian name. When she went where all good Armenians land when they come to the U.S., Fresno, California, <laughs> she became Louise. That was the translation of Arshalus. And Bedrosian is kind of translated, it's Peters, like Peterson, and so their last name was changed to Peters. So my grandma um, grew up on a raisin uh, farm, kind of, it's what you do when you're Armenian in Fresno, you do things like grow raisins, and her big goal was to get to the city of San Francisco where she would take on some sort of job in business. Her education wasn't a... a Masters of Divinity or a Doctorate of Ministry. It was a credential that said she was going to be able to be, serve as a secretary. And the diploma, I kid you not, was about two feet by three feet. She was so proud of this diploma. My sister's gone on to be a PhD and her PhD diploma is like about this big. So in my grandma's era, in the 20s, there was a women's movement. And it was a movement to gain the vote, for women to be allowed to vote. And my grandma was very much part of that, that hope. In fact, she hoped to own property someday, and after my grandpa passed away, she did. She bought an apartment building, and then she bought another apartment building, and by then she was kind of a stooped over, about as wide as she was tall, Armenian lady. And she used to be out on the step of her apartment buildings, and she'd be kind of hunched over, sweeping, loved her garden. And people, perhaps you've had the experience, would have something go wrong in their apartments. You know, the water heater stops working, or the banister comes off the wall, and they would be complaining to this like older gardener lady, like, hey, something's wrong, you know, could you, could you do something about this? And she would always say, well, I'll tell the landlord. Well, she was the landlord. So she went from this baby being smuggled into the U.S., and I've always thought of us as an immigrant family. The other um, months ago, I guess last summer, I was part of the World Relief ride across the state, and as we were riding across the state to bring attention and raise funds um, for having refugees be established here in Seattle, 
I had the privilege of reading these stories of refugees that World Relief supports. And wisely, every time there was a break, like in the morning, there'd be a story, and then at lunchtime, there'd be the second part of the story, and then like by dinner time, the third part of the story. So I found myself thinking about these stories of refugees. And on the ride, realized that my own family that I've always thought of as an immigrant family who came here by choice, we didn't come here by choice, the Armenian side of my family. They escaped a massacre. They had watched family members killed in their homes. And I realized that I have a different history. The story's actually different when you take a close look at it than after it kind of gets romanticized as it's passed down the generations. So my grandma was part of that first women's movement to try to gain the vote. And then in this picture, you'll actually see that is my seventh birthday. Now, in the 20s, there was a woman whose last name was Bloomer, and she tried to help it become popular that women could wear pants. It hadn't really happened by my seventh birthday there in the 60s. Uh, girls were still wearing dresses to parties and dresses every day to school and bobby socks and oxfords. So at my seventh birthday party, there was this gathering of girls and the women's movement was taking on another step. Equal rights, equal pay. These were new goals, new steps for the women's movement. And in this picture, there are some girls who kind of took that on. There's a woman who became an MD, PhD, and the director of public health in the city of Columbus. There's a woman who became a Stanford grad, doubly over in uh, undergrad and law school, became a partner in a big law firm in San Francisco. There's a woman who became the head of nursing and then medical care in one of our local hospitals. There's also a woman who lost her life to an ectopic pregnancy. And then there's me, who God called to be a pastor when I didn't even know women could be pastors. So in that era, uh, we begin to see a different sort of call. And we think it's kind of new for women to have these opportunities. But today, we're going to look at an Old Testament story from thousands of years ago about Deborah, who was a leader, who was a judge, who God called in a unique way. She's a leader whose words shape people's lives. She's a commander-in-chief, a warrior, a mother, a judge, the head of state, a religious leader, a prophetess who hears from God and speaks for God. She's sort of a wonder woman, Deborah. So when we examine her life and her calling, I hope that we're going to discover that, that God indeed called her and put her into that spot, and that we might consider again what God's calling us to, what story is unfolding for God's namesake in our own lives. The fact is that the context of this is that Israel is experiencing kind of repeated failure. Here's the perspective. You'll remember that God, through Moses, led the Israelites out of Egypt, and they wandered the desert for 40 years, and they came to the edge of the promised land, but Moses didn't get to go in. They were led by Joshua into the promised land. And then after Joshua leads the people to the promised land, and they're, they're thriving, the land of milk and honey, uh, they, they kind of falter. Joshua dies, and they don't really have the kind of leadership that would cause them to be thriving. So the Israelites 
ended up not driving out the Canaanites, but they became sort of like them instead. And so God raised up a series of judges. And Pastor Tim Keller, who, by the way, has a different opinion about women's roles and men's roles, he's what's called a complementarian, where believing that, yes, equal, yes, both created in the image of God, but clearly for different roles. So if you, there's another option for uh, what you might want to explore. Uh, Keller says this, that there's this cycle of rebellion, retribution, repentance, rescue, and then it repeats. It's sort of this messiness that happens, and then it's messiness on repeat. So it helps us now if we see that our own stories are like this. There's, there's kind of this cycle that we long to break out of, and Deborah is part of this. She responds to God's call in Judges 5 and uh, verse 9. Her qualification is this. It says, my heart Deborah's heart is with the rulers of Israel, all who offer themselves willingly to the Lord. That's really the invitation of her life, is to offer oneself willingly to whatever God has in mind. So the results are clear. She takes this position of leadership, and her leadership eventually inspires the people of Israel to change their ways and stop worshiping other gods, at least for a time. So tonight, we're going to look at four things that uh, attributes, verbs, really, of Deborah. First, she leads, she serves, she sings, and then she's called a mother of Israel. So first, leadership. Leaders act. Leaders roll up their sleeves and say, yep, it will be hard. Yep, it's never been done. Yep, there's a lot of reasons why we shouldn't. There are downside risks. But that doesn't mean we don't take action. Leaders assess the risk, the upside, the downside. Leaders take a risk, and they do what needs to be done. In Judges 4, what Nancy read, it says, At that time, Deborah, a prophetess, wife of Lapidoth, she's placed into a family, she has a husband, was judging Israel. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah. She had so many people come to her that she actually kind of had this spot named after her, the palm of Deborah, between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country. And the Israelites came to her for judgment. So when I think of judge, I think of, you know, uh, the Supreme Court upon which there sit three women in their black robes and with their like details there at the collar. And in her day, the, a judge wasn't just that kind of a judge. A judge was kind of a governor overall kind of the, the leader of the whole area, the, the whole country. So scripture doesn't seem to make a big deal out of the fact that Deborah was female. She's just listed as one of the judges. Scholars are unsure why this is. Some say that female leaders were unheard of and therefore um, it's exceptional because maybe they were out of male leaders and so they, God called on Deborah, like here comes somebody. Others say, no, it's, it's not really worth noting. It's just there were these judges, and now there's Deborah. And that's who God called. In any case, there she is, a prophetess who speaks for God, a wife, and a governing leader, all of Israel under her jurisdiction. Deborah is obedient to God and steps into this role. And then she calls Israel to fight against great odds. She inspires the allegiance of Barak and Jael, by whose hands Israel is at peace for another 40 years. So the second action of Deborah is that she serves. 
She calls Barak to her and says, as we heard, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. Go and take with you 10,000 men and lead them up to Mount Tabor. And I will lead Sisera, the commander of the enemy army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give them into your hands. She prophesies that, that when Barak goes, he's going to win the battle. It's like a promise from God. And then Barak says to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go, I'm not going to go. Okay, if you are in leadership and you're speaking for God, and God says, you're going to go and you're going to gain the victory, do you say, uh, no, thank you? Or do you go? It's an interesting quandary. So Barak evidently assesses the risk, and either if you're optimistic about his view, he says, oh, yes, I see that I can win the battle, but you are the one who will really bring the victory. Like you, Deborah, you really have the ear of God. If you come with me, all will be well. Or on the downside, we could look at Barak as a bit of a chicken. Like, God told me to go, God told me I'm going to win the battle, but I don't think it'll really happen. I'm going to take you with me, Deborah, as sort of a like security blanket. Like, okay, you come with me and then, then it will happen. Then it will be okay. And Deborah, now if you were here, her, are you going to go or are you not going to go? I, I think it would kind of bug me. Like, I told you to go. Maybe it's my mother voice that's coming out. But she says, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah got up and went with Barak to Kadesh. So she serves Barak by meeting him where he's at. She doesn't uh, belittle him. She doesn't tell him, you know, because you have refused, like the whole battle will be lost. The battle is still won. There's an author, Sarah Bessie, um, she's a Canadian, she wrote a book called Out of Sorts, Making Peace with Evolving Faith, and she says this, God saved you because he loves you, and he longs to restore your relationship. You were rescued and redeemed to be with God. The one who delights in you yearns to walk with you. I think Deborah kind of represents Christ in this. She says, I'll go with you. I'll be with you in the midst of your fear. Sarah goes on to say, God wants to enjoy your presence, to see you become fully human, fully alive, fully your own self. God doesn't want to use you. He wants to be with you because he loves you. So God's inviting Barak into this kind of glory, and and he's too scared to embrace it. So Deborah goes with him. She serves him in that way. And then they, they, it, it goes on. It plays out. And I named this little section, God Calls Deborah to Sing. She kind of uh, goes through the whole experience that we're going to look into a little bit further here. And then she reflects on it. Like, how did this whole experience fit into the big picture? Some scholars say that this piece of scripture was written later. Um, It's one of the great songs of scripture, just as when Moses leads the people out of the Red Sea and Miriam writes a song, and just as when Mary, the mother of Jesus, receives the news that she's going to become the mother of the Messiah, 
she sings a song called Mary's Magnificat. This is one of those songs that brings praise and honor to God, and it's just so poetic. So it captures um, the story. So hear this uh, out of the message. This is in Judges chapter 5. Hear, O kings, listen, O princes, to God, yes, to God I'll sing. Make music to God, to the God of Israel. And then she goes into this kind of ballad part. Like, remember, this is what happened. Public roads were abandoned. Travelers went by back roads. Warriors became fat and sloppy. No fight left in them. Then you, Deborah, rose up. You got up, a mother in Israel. God chose new leaders who then fought at the gates. And then he goes on to describe how the battle was won. Barak went in spite of his fear because Deborah went with him. And yes, he had men, but Sisera had chariots, iron chariots, and yet they were completely defeated. Every last one except Sisera himself. So Sisera escapes, and then this is what happened. And this part should be rated R for violence. Hear what it goes on. So most blessed of all women is a new character in our story, J.L. Has anyone ever heard of a young woman named J.L.? It's kind of, a, I think, a bold name to name your child because here's why she's famous. She's the wife of Heber the Kenite, the most blessed of homemaking women. He, Sisera, when he escaped, asked for water. He goes to her tent. He asked for water. She brought him milk in a handsome bowl. She offered him cream. And then, now, Sisera is the enemy. He thinks he's gone to the tent of a friend, but the wife, J.L., is really not on his team, as you will now see. <laughs> Women used to uh, put the tents up in that day, so she takes the tools that are nearby. She grabbed a tent peg in her left hand, and with her right hand, she seized a hammer. She hammered Sisera. She smashed his head. She drove a hole through his head. She, he slumped at her feet. He fell. He sprawled. He slumped at her feet. He fell, slumped, fallen, dead. Very graphic. Thus may all God's enemies perish, while his lovers be like the unclouded sun. And the land was quiet for 40 years. What could lead a woman to do such a thing? He was an awful man, Sisera. In fact, in this chapter, a piece that I didn't read is that, uh, read, Sisera's mother is waiting for him to come back from battle. And she's kind of waiting at the window. And she's saying to those around her, I don't know where my son is. The battle should be over. He should have won by now. Oh, he and his men are probably out plundering the Hebrews. Maybe one or two women for every one of the soldiers. Now for J.L., she, those, those were women she loved. Maybe those were her nieces or her aunties or her daughters or herself. So when she has Sisera in her tent and she knows that his men have been defeated, remember we were sort of celebrating Barak's victory, hundreds, thousands were killed, she knows that this commander-in-chief really doesn't deserve to live. So we may not uh, condone or, or agree with the means by which she takes her action, but is this not a woman who stands with the women even of today? Hashtag me too. Time's up. 
Jael does what she thinks she needs to do to protect the women she loves. She takes the life of Sisera. This is not rainbows and unicorns. This is a reminder, as in Ephesians 6.12, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers and systems of this world. Friends, followers of Christ, we are in this world, but we are not of it. There are enemies to be defeated. So God calls Deborah to sing. God called Emma Gonzalez recently to silence. Emma Gonzalez led her fellow students to six minutes and 20 seconds of silence, which is the same amount of time that their high school had been under siege and gunfire had been going on in Parkland. This week, we celebrate the 20, 20 years, is it, of Columbine? It's on the 20th. How many people have to march? What has to happen to say no? This can't continue. What's our part in it? In what ways are we contributing in some sort of cycle that just gets messier and messier? How might God be calling us to say, no, this can't continue? We see this represented in JL. And we see Deborah singing. And in that, that last line, she said, while his lovers be like the unclouded sun, for those who love God, may there be a sense of eternity, even now. So Deborah is called mother in Israel. What makes a mother a mother? The best of motherhood somehow brings life. I became a mom by adopting kids. I didn't get to give them life, but I sure got to love them. Deborah did this for Israel. She faced down enemies for the sake of Israel. She walked into battle with Barak when she thought she could have, he could have been able to do it on his own. She inspired allegiance from Jael, even whose own household was affiliated with the enemy. She served God with the best of her ability. She gave 110%. Her trust in God was her highest adornment. She may never have been a mother raising children, but she became a mother to all Israel through her spiritual blessing. So men and women of Bethany, what's your story going to be? How do you long to be or just receive God's call to be like Deborah? Richard spoke a few weeks ago about what's the fire in your belly? In what way are you called to be a warrior, a wise judge, a singer, songwriter? When we add this last quality, who in our midst feels honored just by this title of mother? Someone who loves day in and day out. Someone we can count on. Someone to make a house a home. There's a young woman named Claire who joined um, back in the day in the 1100s what has now become the Franciscan Order. You've heard of St. Francis? Have you heard of St. Claire? She was kind of the female counterpart. She gave up her jeweled belt. She was a wealthy man's daughter. And she took on the cloak, the kind of scratchy cloak of the Franciscans. She put on the corded belt. She went barefoot all her life. She owned nothing. And many came to follow her. 
She has a great quote that I want to share with you, and then uh, we'll start uh, lead into communion. This is a prayer that she had um, that has just been something I've been pondering for the past month. Go forth in peace, for you have followed the good road. Go forth without fear, for he who created you has made you holy, has always protected you, and loves you like a mother. Go forth in peace, for you have followed the good road. Go forth without fear, for he who created you has made you holy, has always protected you, and loves you like a mother. So she had this little community that she loved, and she was taking care of them, and she had uh, taught them to follow Christ and to kind of step into this new order. And there comes uh, an army that's actually invading uh, Italy and France at the time, the Saracens. And she pleads with God, you know, protect us. These These are like my children that I have led to follow you. And she kind of relinquishes them to God's care. And I think I have a quote here of exactly what she says. She says, I have nourished them with your love. I beseech you, dear Lord, protect these whom I'm not able to protect. And then to her sisters, she said, don't be afraid, trust in Jesus. And here's what they did. They took what they had at the time of their communion wafers. They had no uh, weapons, but they had communion wafers. And they plastered them on the interior walls of the convent as if to say, this is God's holy place. This place belongs to Jesus. And then they got down there on their knees and just kind of fearlessly prayed to God uh, that the enemy would be turned back. And those Saracens, they marched right up to the outside of the convent and heard what was going on inside and that perhaps God was on the side of these nuns and they turned around. They left. They were protected. And somehow this reminds me of this idea that God wants us to fear not, to to not be afraid of the future, to not be captive to the past, but to know that God meets us right where we are, that he's God with us. And I believe that's part of what he intended in communion, that he offered his very life. And he, he said, whenever you drink of the cup, like, remember me. He took these ordinary substances to say, you need to eat and drink. And when you do, remember me. Remember that my blood was shed for this new covenant, this new relationship that could happen between us. And my body was broken. And he says, do this and remember me. Take this bread and drink this cup and have this new life. Please pray with me. Gracious and mighty God, We thank you that you are a God who walks with us, that you don't say to us, um, hey, I see your fear and, and you can do it, go ahead. But you say to us, I see your fear and I am right with you. You don't need to be afraid. Lord God, we ask that you would so move in our midst, that we would be known as a people of hope, that we would be known as a people who have a different allegiance, an allegiance to the God of the universe who created us, who redeemed us. Lord, that we wouldn't be caught in some sort of cycle of sin or cycle of cynicism or cycle of despair, but that we would cling to the one who can bring new life. 
So Lord Jesus, maybe there's some way that even tonight, someone in here is wondering uh, what you have for them. Maybe they're looking for work. Maybe they're looking for love. Maybe they're looking for a new home. Lord, maybe they're looking for their life to have some sort of meaning and purpose beyond what they can see. Lord, would you meet them in this moment? Would you remind us um, that your perfect love casts out our fears, that you have great plans for all those who love you, for we long to sing your praises. So come, Lord Jesus, meet us here. In the name of the Father and of the Son, of the Holy Spirit.